Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. Comparatively speaking, the British puts on a classier kind of TV show than the US. They've done this so much that American TV executives are never too eager to borrow some of the more popular shows from across the pond. For example, the story about two single women who needed a roommate when their third friend moves away. The night after a party, they discover a mysterious man in their bathtub. Hilarity ensues for a little bit until it's revealed that the man, an aspiring chef, has no place to live. The two single women take a chance and take the man in on the condition that they have to convince their downstairs landlords that the man is gay, even though he isn't. Hilarity continues to ensue for many years, with one story after another of big misunderstandings. If that story sounds familiar, it's because it started in the UK as a sitcom called Man About the House. But later on, TV executives in the US took that idea and turned it into the long-running Three's Company. Come and knock on our door. That's just one of many examples of a transatlantic transplant done right. And for the most part, the track record for bringing these shows across the pond has been positive over the decades. Which brings us to Faulty Towers. Arguably one of the greatest TV comedies of all time, regardless of national origin, Faulty Towers was a showcase and the post-Python pinnacle of achievement for John Cleese, who put on the show along with his then-wife, Connie Booth. For those unfamiliar, it was the tale of the put-upon, acid-tongued hotel owner Basil Faulty, and the calamities that he faced along with his viper-mouthed wife Sybil, befuddled Spanish waiter Manuel, and level-headed maid Polly. Although the show aired only 12 episodes, it still left a memorable impact on those who saw it back in the day, and remains one of the high watermarks of comedy. So naturally, American TV executives that were watching the show were beyond convinced that they've come across yet another British magic bullet that was certain to become the next great adaptation. Thing is, there's a reason why things that are considered perfect are never to be messed around with by those who don't understand its powers. It's a lesson that the so-called experts of television had to learn the hard way. As this show, managed to find permanent residency in a hotel that has no amenities, no room service, and a serious problem with its air conditioning. This show wished it checked in to the Hotel California, but instead finds itself bucked at the Motel 666 that we call Telehell. Before we get to our subject, we'd be remiss if we didn't briefly mention what was really the first ripoff of the show, just to get it out of the way. The first attempt at an American version of Faulty Towers took place in 1978, when the iconic Harvey Korman and Betty White tried to take on the characters in an unaired TV pilot. Only here, they were not named Faulty, but rather, Snavely. 
The premise transforms the seaside hotel in England to a budget highway motel in California and was known to borrow elements from various faulty episodes. Unfortunately, despite how vast the internet may be and just how few scraps of information there is about the show, we can't really judge this one without being able to watch it. The only piece of info we can confirm about the show is a 2009 print interview John Cleese gave where he thought the stars, quote, played it too slow and felt embarrassed by the dialogue, end quote. Incidentally, a copy of the script is available to be read at, of all places, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign campus. Pretty random place to find it, but consider that a stop to make the next time you're vacationing in the Midwest. With that said, let's move on to 1983 and the first faulty ripoff that some people actually remembered. The powers that be at the ABC television network felt that enough time had passed between then and the time the original Faulty went off the air in 1979 that they should give Americanizing the classic show another shot. With the network and its aging repertoire of hit shows trailing behind CBS's continued dominance and NBC stealthily sneaking back into second place, the Alphabet Net realized they needed to play catch-up for the mid-season. While the network did have drama locked up for the mid-season of 1983 thanks to two memorable miniseries, The Winds of War and The Thornbirds, ABC still needed a funny bone transplant. With shows like Laverne and Shirley and Too Close for Comfort coming to an end, replacements had to be lined up. Enter veteran TV writer Elliot Scheinman, whose resume at that point had only been limited to a sparse number of TV movies. But more importantly, he also penned several episodes of the sitcom Maud. Thanks to that earlier connection, it was easy for Scheinman to get in touch with B. Arthur, who had been off series television for about five years at that point. Scheinman proceeded to pitch Arthur on the idea of a new Faulty Towers remake. The convincing didn't take too long since Arthur was already a fan of the original. So after some quick deal-making, Arthur agreed to a 13-episode first season to bring the new adaptation of Faulty to American shores. February 10th, 1983. A major snowstorm was sweeping up the east coast of the United States. The music group, Men at Work, hit the charts with the song Down Under, which we cannot play because we can't afford the rights to it. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain, a charming seaside hotel would open its doors for the first time. That said, let's check in to Amanda's. On the surface, Amanda's, or as it was known internationally, Amanda's by the Sea, looked like any other sitcom about a person trying to maintain a small business. Of course, that would be easy to say if there wasn't already something deceptively similar to compare it to. Thing is, B. Arthur was an established star with numerous accolades under her belt. 
Certainly, she wasn't going to be content playing an Americanized version of just Sybil Faulty, which is why the biggest distinction for this series was the notion of Arthur playing both Sybil and Basil combined into one character, Amanda Cartwright, marking one of the first times on television that role reversal from the original product had taken place. The idea was more intriguing than it was problematic, partly because of Arthur being a known name, so perhaps the twist would work out. But without an antagonistic husband and wife dynamic to move things along, who would Arthur spar against during the show? Well, let's begin with the one thing they got right while porting the original Faulty, the casting of the foreign bellhop. In the UK, the late Andrew Sachs played the memorable Manuel. In the US, the character became Aldo and was played by late comic actor Tony Rosato, who at the time was let go after one season of a recently retooled Saturday Night Live. Where's David? The man who was sitting here. Where is oh, he? Oh, David, he go up. He what? He said to me he don't want to eat. So I say to him, go up to your room. <laughs> Although the character paled in comparison to the original, at least Rosado put in the effort, which is far more than can be said for the rest of the cast. In place of an actual Sybil, Arthur's character would be pitted against her son, played by Fred McCarran, and her spoiled daughter-in-law, played by Simone Griffith. Sigmund Freud would have a field day with that. Also trying to match wits would be veteran actor Kevin McCarthy as Arthur's brother-in-law, and as the main antagonist, a banker straight out of the snidely whiplash playbook simply named Mr. Mundy, played by Keen Curtis. This is where we get to another problem with the show. The fact that there were too many adversaries for Arthur to face, when in the original show, Basil Fawlty's own worst enemy was really himself and his arrogance, and that the people he sparred with were either outlets or extensions of that. But perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves since we have yet to look at the pilot episode. Maybe Arthur will play things slightly differently considering she's practically playing two characters at the same time. As we mentioned, this was a 13-episode commitment, but for brevity's sake, we're only going to look at the pilot episode. We should also preface this by stating that McCarthy and Curtis do not appear in this episode, but that another antagonist will, just so there's no further confusion. It's here that we're also going to do a little bit of compare and contrast, because the pilot episode of Amanda's took quite a bit of liberty with one particular faulty episode. Though not exactly word for word, see if you can figure out which one. We begin with this exchange between Amanda and a couple looking to check in. Aldo! Aldo, please, take our charming and distinguished guests up to room 102. <laughs> distinguished guests, 102. Okay. You'll have to excuse him. He He's thinks Boss is a local. He thinks what? You know, some zone, some uh, province in equatorial Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. I forgot this was a podcast. I have to explain the visual gags, don't I? Okay. <clears throat> For those unfamiliar, this is the gag where Manuel doesn't quite understand the command to take a guest bags upstairs, to which Faulty tries to explain things to Manuel using flashcards. Amanda does the same, except the writers carelessly forgot the punchline to that piece, where Manuel holds up a single card that says, OK, in response. Cue the audience laughing. <laughs> Moving on. 
A few minutes into Amanda's pilot, we have that other unnecessary addition to the fray, a rival hotel owner who goes by the name Mr. Krinsky, played by Michael Constantine, who essentially tries to give us our main deviation from faulty. Amanda, you know, you really underestimate me. Don't you think I recognize that this hotel is an extension of you? The charm of this building makes it a local landmark, which I promise to preserve forever as a monument to your dedication. You want to rip it down. And put up tennis courts, right. of course. <laughs> It's also during this exchange where the main plot point of the episode kicks into gear. Once again, listen carefully to where they might have drawn inspiration from their British counterpart. Marty, Marty, would you come in here? Yeah, ma'am. Marty, when is that hotel critic due? Mm, about two weeks. What do you mean about? Didn't your friend at West Coast Magazine give us his cats? Am I getting warm? <laughs> there are some hotel inspectors in town. A friend of Bill Morton's overheard three men in a pub last night comparing notes on places they'd just been in Exeter. Even forgiving the fact that Amanda has to face off against a magazine critic as opposed to Faulty's inspector, you can probably see where this is going to go. But let's keep going. Do both shows have a scene with an impatient customer ringing the check-in bell? Believe me, I know a little something about satisfying guests. Is there something I can do for you? Could you do that in a moment, please? I'm on the telephone. But you haven't finished dialing yet, have you? Check. Bitterly awkward sniping between customer and manager? I am displeased with my view. All I can see out of my window is trees. But what did you expect to see out of a window in California? The Eiffel Tower? <laughs> or perhaps Krakatoa? I would just like to tell you that I have a wide experience of hotels, and some of those of my acquaintance have had the foresight to introduce this facility for the benefit of their guests. No, I see you have a wide experience of hotels. Yes, you? in my professional activities, I am in constant contact with them. Are you? Are you really? Check. Realization that the customer that the manager is sparring with may or may not be the critic and or inspector? Well, sort of. Faulty's version comes right to the point about it, while Amanda's feels the need to pad things out to the punchline by adding our next unnecessary character, the spoiled daughter-in-law Arlene, a character that tries to be our updated Sybil Faulty, but instead makes Julia Duffy's character from Newhart look like June Cleaver. Martin, I'm just sick. What's the matter? This blouse. I told Mother to send me fern green, and this is more of a guacamole. Arlene, this wouldn't keep happening if you didn't insist on sending to Boston for all your clothes. I send to Boston, Martin, because I'm accustomed to the best. After all, my father is the third leading manufacturer of folding chairs in America. After that distraction, we get another possible critic. Hey, excuse me, do you have any rooms? No. Are you sure? I'm desperate. Uh, this big meeting is just... Look, I said we are full. Although, <laughs> there is a room that I have been holding for a Mr. Jones. Who in no possible way resembles Faulty's own critical red herring. Is there anywhere you'd like me to sit? Okay. I'm in room seven. Oh, yes, please, here. Uh, you both, up, up, all right, room seven. No, no. Yes, please, I show you. No, look, I want a table. After that bit of comparison pricing, we get the next deviation from Amanda a scene where the hotel's kitchen stove breaks down. Through a series of weak who's-on-first-style humor, we come to the conclusion that, shock of shocks, the stove breaks down, thus wasting a minute of the audience's time. Well, I had to order for two steaks, one medium, one rare, both on a cart. One was last tomatoes instead of potatoes, <laughs> and onion rings and French Will you tell me what happened? Okay. Well, I got the steaks out of the walk-in and trimmed off the fat. Now it was time to add a little seasoning. Well, I was just going to use salt and pepper, but then I decided, what the heck, go for some garlic powder. Now, garlic Did you powder. try lighting the pilot? 
Well, yeah, but the element is shot. That thing's had it. This is then followed by more 80s snobbery from the daughter-in-law. No, Mother, the blouse is supposed to be darker than the pistachio, but lighter than the color of Aunt Ethel's drink. Followed by a third possible critic checking in, whereas Faulty only needed two. This is an outrage. Not only did I make a reservation, I had my magazine called to confirm it. Well, I'm sure... Th- <laughs> Your magazine. That's right. From there, we get a string of needlessly complicated jokes about Amanda and her son trying to switch everybody's rooms around after discovering that the hotel critic is at large. Now all we have to do is trick David into leaving that room, put his things in the hall closet, bring Jones's things back in, and then try to talk one of the guests into checking out and keep David busy until they do check out, and we can put David in there. What? Oh, please. Followed by a scene where Amanda tries to smooth over a lunch service. Manager! Uh, Everything satisfactory, I trust? Oh, yes, just fine. Manager! What is it? (laughs) The lettuce in my salad is wilted. You probably scared it to death. (laughs) Well, I never! That's right, folks. This program is so devoid of ideas that they actually resorted to using, well, I never as suitable dialogue. Moving on, compare what we just went through with a much better failed lunch service from Faulty. At this point, Faulty finds out that the first person believed to be a hotel inspector may be pretending to be a spoon salesman as his cover story, when unbeknownst to him, the first guest really is a spoon salesman. Spoons, eh? I'm sorry? Spoons. After a series of cheese salad-related misunderstandings... How can, it be, how can it be so difficult to get a cheese salad? You want to run the place? No, no, I just right, want well, to... Shut cheese. up, then. I beg your pardon. Faulty then checks in with the other supposed inspector, who might actually be the one he's trying to impress, thanks to a few hints earlier from his wife, Sybil. A friend of Bill Morton's overheard three men in a pub last night comparing notes on places they'd just been in Exeter. <laughs> yes, there are three of us. Well, the other two aren't here. They're staying at another hotel. Quick! A few more misunderstandings later... Guest number one is accidentally choked out by Faulty. It's all right. He's only choking. Don't worry. A little cheese went the wrong way. <laughs> Never mind. He's fainted. Only for guest number one to get his comeback. Oh, there he is. Good. Oh, Mr. Hutchinson, there you are. What a frightful shame about that bit of cheese getting stuck in the old windpipe like that. Would you like to go in there and discuss it? No, I'd prefer to come in here and discuss it. Oh, fine. I'm afraid it's a little bit uh, of a mess. <laughs> the second guest is seeing all of this and is apparently unfazed by everything going on. Faulty tries to pass things off as normal but then quickly deteriorates to desperation. It's taken us 12 years to build this place up. Don't put this in the book. We're finished if you don't. Please don't. Book? What book? The hotel guy. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Oh, what have I done? Until eventually, guest number two reveals his true colors. Nothing to do with any hotel guide. I'm down here for the exhibition. I sell outboard motors. All right? Basil, realizing that he's now in the clear, decides to get revenge on his first guest. Just as three well-dressed gentlemen, the real inspectors, enter the hotel. 26 bedrooms, 12 with private bathrooms. Yes, well, why don't you have dinner here and um, Chris and I can try the Claremont. Okay. The other's one, Basil Faulty. 
just in time to witness Faulty and Manuel give guest number one a creamy goodbye. Ultimately leading to the punchline where Basil realizes just how screwed he wound up after all. Good afternoon, gentlemen. And what can I do for you three gentlemen? That whole sequence of events is probably one of the most brilliant pieces of comedy known to man. And we'll admit, we're doing it a bit of a disservice by leaving a few minor details out. With that, we encourage you to look up the Inspectors episode of Faulty Towers on YouTube once we're done doing business here. That being said, how does Amanda's wrap up their situation? When we last left them, the kitchen caught on fire and the crew were scrambling to come up with a halfway decent lunch service. Just as they were planning things out, Mr. Krinsky comes back to rub it in their face. What happened? I heard you had a fire. No, no, you're out of luck, Krinsky. Just a little smoke from the hibachi. You're cooking on a hibachi? What happened to your oven? None of your business. There's nothing wrong with this oven. The oven? She dead. She dead. <laughs> Followed immediately by another pointless moment with the daughter-in-law. You should spill wine on my blouse. If it's ruined, I am just going to scream. You're going to love this wine, Mr. Joe. Ah! It's better than most places, sir, but then again, we get a better class of guests. Meanwhile, the mix-up of who's sleeping in what room continues as not Manuel sends a guest to the room where one of the inspectors is currently occupying. Amanda and Aldo hatch a plan. There's only one thing we can do. Take Jones's things out of here, put them in the hall closet, and then we'll get David's suitcase and put it back in here. But bad timing kind of ruins that. What are you doing in my room? The suitcase... I put them closet. No! <laughs> this is then followed by Amanda's son trying to switch around the supposed inspector to a different room. It goes just as well as the first plan. So they move the inspector to the son's room. So I'm putting you in room 104. Room 104 is my room. And can you go? This room is occupied. Oh, no, no. You see, the uh, people who were staying here died. And we just haven't had time to take everything out. Aldo! Aldo, packing boxes. Just in time for the pointless daughter-in-law to actually light the fuse to the punchline by entering the inspector's room while changing out of her ruined blouse. Never find another blouse as well. Certainly not in this garbage second place. Shoving in this town is a nightmare. Are you disgusting animal? What did you call me? Oh, she didn't mean Just like Faulty. The person believed to be the inspector turned out not to be the inspector. Mrs. Cartwright, I think you have me mixed up with somebody else. What do you mean, somebody else? Aren't you the hotel critic from West Coast Magazine? No, I'm the golf editor of Sportsman's Digest. But whereas Faulty's punchline practically came out of nowhere, Amanda's comeuppance was hiding in plain sight. Not only will I pass you by, Mrs. Cartwright, but so will everyone else once my review comes out. <laughs> Your review. That's right. You can read all about my miserable stay here in next month's West Coast Coast magazine. magazine. (laughs) To put it simply, Faulty's run with an inspector ended with a... (laughs) While Amanda's had a much less definitive... Amanda's was closed after 10 aired episodes, with rumors of three unaired episodes being put on in the foreign countries that actually aired the program. And we dare you to watch every single one of them on YouTube. 
Otherwise, the results of the pilot pretty much speaks for the series on a whole. Were it not for the fact that there was already a much better TV show to compare it to, maybe this might have stood a chance. At the same time, the show was also up against some pretty stiff competition. Its direct competitors were the critically acclaimed TV adaptation of Fame on NBC and the powerhouse original Magnum P.I. on CBS. And note to self, save some venom for reboots in the future. But even if the show aired on a Friday night when all the other networks were in reruns, the show would still never have had a chance, even with the star power of B. Arthur. Who, by the way, you shouldn't feel too bad for because two years later, Arthur's involvement in a certain long-running sitcom would turn Amanda Cartwright into a distant memory. Otherwise, the message was clear. People who already saw the original Faulty Towers knew what they were getting themselves into. TV executives learned a hard and fast lesson with Amanda's. Never to mess with success. And if they ever did try to do something like that for a third time, they had to make extra sure not to make the same mistakes ever again. I want to be the host of dignitaries and presidents and royalty. The really swell people, the creme de la creme. Man, my ass hurts from driving. But look, darling, the king and queen of Iowa. Well, folks, just like in the Hotel California, we can check out any time we want, but we can never leave. Or at least not just yet. In a few weeks from now, we'll have the second half of our Faulty Towers ripoff story. Of course, if we're going to get through that other show, we're going to have to order some room service first to pass the time. Next time on Telehell, our commercials of the damned take a look at that strange time at the turn of the century when a sock puppet tried to sell us pizza. Andy, those sockets are only supposed to be used for Domino's heatwave bags. They need to stay plugged in so the pizza's delivered hot. Andy, are you listening to me? Turn this stuff off! Until then. If it's not a Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Oh, one more thing. Just because we watch a lot of TV doesn't mean that we don't want to socialize. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter, both at Telehell Podcast. And of course, you can also go to our own page, telehell.libsyn.com. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Libsyn. Just search for Telehell.